Hi there, and welcome to the Everyday Millionaire Podcast. My name is Patrick Franci, and I am your host, and I want to begin by saying thank you for listening. On this show, I am having conversations with seemingly ordinary individuals who have achieved some amazing and extraordinary results in both their life and business. My intention is to inspire and help you learn and grow by having my guests share their journey of how they face and overcome their challenges, but also how they celebrate their many wins. And now let's get on with this show and have a conversation with today's guest. My guest today, Colleen Matthews, is a lifelong learner. She launched her career with Price Waterhouse Cooper in Calgary and then moved to the Cayman Islands where she worked for 12 years in the hedge fund industry. She earned her CFA designation in 2000 and continues to relentlessly learn, pursue knowledge, and grow in all aspects of her life. She returned to Canada in 2008 to raise her growing family and shift her professional attention to real estate investment. Colleen believes financial education is essential knowledge that everyone should have access to. And she continues to invest in real estate to this day and leverage her knowledge and experience as a financial professional with over 25 years of experience. In my conversation today, Colleen shares many valuable insights and lessons learned through her extensive travels and amazing career. Without any further delays, let's get this show started. Colleen Matthews, welcome to the Everyday Millionaire Podcast. Thanks for joining me. Thanks, Patrick. I'm excited to be here. Well, I see this as an opportunity to get to know you a little bit better. We recently, you know, you were part of a program that we ran and uh, very impressive. And I want to talk to you. I want to have a conversation with where you are today, given where you've kind of been and how you got here. So Colleen, I'm going to ask the question that I always ask, because your bio doesn't really do justice to who I know you as. So when somebody says, Colleen, what do you do? What's your answer to that question? I usually take a deep breath and a long pause. And I generally come up with I'm a financial professional with a focus on real estate. <laughs> well, okay, so that's that's great. So let's talk a little bit about the real estate component of it, because uh, real estate, it's not new to you, but tell me a little bit about the real estate part of your journey. You know, it's interesting. It just evolved over time. I've always been curious about real estate. I've always seen it as a great investment, but it certainly wasn't the direction that I intended my professional career to go. I started off as a chartered accountant, articling with a professional firm and seeing my future, possibly being a partner in that firm, uh, traveled the world, took a posting in a foreign jurisdiction and did own real estate, but sort of something that just made financial sense on the side. And it's been sort of this constant bedfellow and has sort of changed over the years as my direction has changed. And it's just become a, a bigger and bigger component of what I dedicate my time to. And in fact, uh, a revelation story hit at one point along the way that, that this is really where the majority of my focus should be. Now, okay, so you said a lot in that, and I need to pick it apart a little bit because there's lots of interesting things that I heard. And first off is that you, did you follow through to become a CA? Yes, yes. So I did that here in Calgary with Price Waterhouse yeah. and 
the reason I chose that firm was for their international presence. And I really wanted to get out of Calgary, get out of Canada, go see the world. Uh, and there was a good opportunity to move to our Cayman Islands office. So I went there with the intention of staying 18 months, learning the banking industry, and then moving to Luxembourg and working in a foreign language and and living in Europe. That was my plan. <laughs> and how did that plan go? <laughs> you know, pretty much most plans don't ever really uh, come exactly the way that you think they will. Uh, I didn't fully respect how interesting working in the Cayman Islands would be. I thought it was a means to learn banking, but probably a boring beach destination, fun for a while, but not where you want to spend your career. And man, was I wrong. Fourth largest financial center in the world. Pretty much anything financially that can be dreamt of can be created and invested in there. And all the financial professionals that surround an environment like that are based in that environment from all over the world. It was a really exciting place to live. Well, what I find interesting about that, if I unpack that a little bit, you know, first and foremost, uh, you got that call to go to Caymans, which is in itself a statement of just kind of where you were in the level of your career. Those are big moves for anybody to make, even Price Waterhouse. And so they made a decision based on who you were and your who they saw you as. That's a statement of you, by the way. That's how I read that stuff. That's just how my brain fires. So good for you. But then you went to Caymans as an account, which it was that while you were accounting in the Caymans that you actually went on to financial services. Where did that transition take place? Because, I mean, I'm certain that would have opened up the doors to a whole different world and level of finance and financial creativity and abundance and all the rest of it. You're so right. You're so right. Uh, Calgary was so oil and gas focused at the time. The majority of my training was oil and gas, which is why I knew I was missing sort of a, a tool in my tool belt to get to Europe and be part of European banking, just didn't really have the financial industry background. Uh, and Cayman was a great place to pick up the basics from that. And then uh, really found that it was on the cutting edge. You know, everything that was for institutional investors, uh, things that, that we didn't see on the retail side of things or the everyday man has no access to was all going on there. And it was really exciting to be part of. So I made the leap rather than going to Luxembourg, I went to one of the banks on the island, which was uh, a Swiss bank and joined their hedge fund services department. And that's where the knowledge acquisition just exploded. One of the largest asset managers in the world and the clients to go with it. And fabulous time in the mid nineties to be growing that business traveling the world and meeting the people that are behind sort of this cutting edge uh, investment instrument. Really exciting. Wow. Uh, that's very impressive. And just you and what's impressive to me, aside from the actual doingness of what you did, the openness or the foresight as some, you know, as a young lady to or young woman to actually be saying, I want something more. I want something bigger or more challenging, more diverse, which to me is really cool. And I want to know a little bit about, I, like, I always am curious, you know, when it comes to entrepreneurship and then expanding just the roles that we take on and the jobs that we take, career paths, perhaps, you know, is it nature or nurture? So let's go back a little bit 
And tell me, like, how did you get on that path to saying Calgary is just not big enough or there's just not enough here for me in Calgary? When did you have that realization? Why did you have it? Was it a parent thing? Was it a, a professor thing? Like, how did you get to that place? You know, it just always felt really small to me. And I think I, I would originally credit that to being Canadian. We're exposed to television from the U.S., all of the, I, you know, Hollywood actors, the music that you listen to, everything seems to be coming from outside of Canada, apart from required Canadian content, right? And just sort of made me curious to go see what was going on in the rest of the world. Uh, so I think that just was always foundational. And I think probably there was a little bit of nature in there of just having an entrepreneurial spirit and perhaps being a bit of a risk taker. I'd always had a little business as a kid. I had a, a dollhouse that I used to uh, make make things for. And there was a shop in Calgary that would sell them for me on a consignment basis. And then I had a film project way back with an eight millimeter camera with a friend of mine. And we tried filming an animated commercial for one of the neat local shops. It's just something that uh, trying new things being experimental and uh, and as a kid, I suppose a little bit more fearless. I think we grow fear as we get older, but as a kid, it was fun to just try all these things and to want a bigger bigger bite of the pie. You know, it's interesting that we look at Canada and certainly just be based on research that I do and you know my background these days, uh, these past several years of that part of what I do, you really start to understand in the big picture how small Canada really is. You know, and, you know, 38 million people or whatever the exact numbers is somewhere in that neighborhood. I mean, we are just barely a rounding error to any place else in the world that has that kind of meaning. And I love Canada, by the way. But to your point, it really is a small world that we live in in a, in a you know geographic big area. So it's interesting that we have those realizations. You had it much younger than I did. And that's kind of cool. Now, you're back to your, a little bit about your parents, Colleen. You know, were your parents entrepreneurs? What role did they play in your life? You know, fabulous uh, role models in many ways, but not entrepreneurial. Always um, largely worked for someone else. Um, my mom was a social worker. My dad, an engineer, educated people, very supportive. Um, but I think part of that rebellious stage of, I'm going to do everything different than my parents did. Mm -hmm. And then we all largely become our parents at some later point down the stage, right? That, it it, uh, it was sort of wanting to break through the boundaries and do things that that I saw them not necessarily doing, but I wanted for myself. And then uh, kind of funny how you come full circle and you realize that some of the things you really value bring you right back to where you started from. Mm, interesting, isn't it? Now, did you have siblings? Yes, a younger brother. And younger brother, did he go on to do cool things like you or he's a totally different path? Totally different path. He did his own cool things. Yeah, he got to go work for Nortel when they were the Big biggest thing. employer. Yeah, so his uh, you know, computer engineering, somewhat like my father, ended up uh, going that direction, but also in a different city. And he's he's stayed in Ottawa uh, to date. You know, he's he's forged his own path uh, in an entirely different direction. So as you were working the Caymans, Colleen, you know, when you look at what you took on and what you embraced in terms of, I guess, just overall education, learning, growth, 
what was driving you back then? Do you remember? Was it just this real curiosity into business models, into finance? What was kind of underlying the drive for you to really take that on? And I mean, what it's you know, came as a beautiful place, but of course that gets old really fast too, unless you've got something great that you're doing. So obviously you had that going on, but is there an underlying driver there for you that you can kind of share with us that would make that you can connect to? Yeah, there were probably a few things going on. One being a you know great time and a great place as an industry was really expanding and working with a team that was fully funded and resourced. We had excellent marketing people, great reputation, access to fabulous clients who were at the top of their game in their various fields, whether it was you know, futures traders in the coffee industry in Brazil, or, you know, our team in New York who were working with, uh, you know, the best professionals on Wall Street to very big presence in Dublin and London, and just a really exciting group of people who were all operating at the top of their game, which just always encourages you to do the same. I think that was one of the, the big, big factors. And another, it was still Slightly early days, there was uh, definitely a thought as to what a hedge fund professional looked like, mostly men, mostly mm. of a certain profile, and found it a little frustrating sometimes, but also a motivating challenge to break into these rooms and prove why I would be there. And that often meant a board table with 12 of my peers, who none of whom wear a skirt, yeah. <laughs> and... Uh, and it was an excellent environment to really sharpen my game and push me to do my best. I, I really enjoyed it. Well, it's interesting that you leverage that. And, you know, sometimes we don't know what drives us, right? Like we, or we don't see perhaps until we reflect is that, you know, whatever part of you said, no, I got to prove to these men that I can pull this off and that I can play the same game and I can play at that level or better. And if that's what drives, if that's part of the drive, or you have something to prove, then that's great. I think it's awesome. And, you know, there's another part of this that I think is interesting too, is, you know, I often say that we can't see opportunities until we see what's possible. And unless we can see what's possible, you know, those, you, there's just no way for you to see the opportunities. It takes a long time for them to kind of grow or even figure out what it might be. It's interesting how important environment is because you are seeing what's possible every day because you were surrounded by some very successful people in that industry. Is is that kind of when you reflect on it, Colleen, do you see the impact of that? Or was that part of, am I, am I stating some of what you saw as well? Yes. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. And, and there were other female role models to follow. There were, it was a fairly diverse team um, for the fact that we were working in such an international environment. Uh, you know, when I look at the team that I had in New York, fabulous, but somewhat homogeneous as a group, um, very different from the clients that I worked with in South America, right? And each pocket of people, you get to see things from a different perspective. You learn to um, value certain attributes. You know, it was very interesting at a time when the hedge fund industry in New York was bigger than big. For example, my clients in Brazil, very subdued. They, they dressed differently. They were not trying to attract attention. I don't think 
kidnapping was as big a threat as it would be in Colombia or somewhere, but still it just was, it was not the practice there to flaunt the wealth in the same way. And there was uh, sort of a value system around that that I think is really beneficial. And when you balance out so many different cultures and so many different perspectives, I think you can learn a lot and decide what you want to cherry pick from each to drive you forward. So how long were you, did you wear the CA hat before you transitioned into financial services of some sort? Well, that was after qualifying in Canada, uh, just about two years in, in Cayman, moved to financial services, still using the chartered accounting skills. I was of not doing accounting per se, but uh, fabulous foundational block for building upon. And then learning the financial services industry, I was uh, was in Cayman for 12 years, over which time it became beneficial to learn to do a CFA designation as well, just uh, speak the language of the, of the managers that I was working with and let them know we could have a conversation that we'd both understand. Uh, always good to learn new skills and kind of one thing, every generation that goes down, we're, we're seeing constant education as just being the norm, even though once upon a time in my original thought was I would be a CA and that would be my plan. <laughs> I wouldn't necessarily go back to school ever, but now I'm constantly back at school. It's just uh, part of growth and development. So that was uh, that was part of the process there was just being driven to the next steps as, as each door opened and opportunities presented themselves. Well, it's interesting, too, is that, you know, CFA by, uh, and this is my own story, I don't know this to be true, by the way, uh, my sense of it is that it's true, is that CFAs don't really get behind a real estate or building a hard asset of real estate. You know, they may get into, say, buying a REIT or even considering an LP, but, you know, if you're going to get into, you know, the sticks and mortar real estate, they're not big fans of that. Is that a accurate statement? I think that's very true. And it's interesting I think it was a fabulous uh, educational learning experience. It wasn't one that I felt I really had monumental mental shift having gone through. I uh, I first sat down to take a look at what was involved, and you know, an accounting component is there, an ethics component is there. Yeah, there were sort of four pillars to the education, and I thought, well, I got I got accounting and I got ethics just fine, so. I won't need to study for those. And, and it was very funny. There's a big difference between chartered accounting ethics and CFA ethics. And you're able basically to do whatever you want as long as you tell your clients that you are doing it as a CFA. And it just didn't quite marry exactly with my original foundational background of, well, maybe if you're the one guiding something, you shouldn't be guiding them to something that you are benefiting from, right? So it, it was an interesting uh, learning opportunity and a good perspective as to what really happens in a lot of the world. But no, it didn't really meld with my thought process, my values. And again, as you point out, real estate. I think that as we've all looked at over time, some of the institutional investing on the retail scale just really doesn't tap into the full potential of what anybody could be doing with their money, but it's what drives the fees for the large institutions. And so that's what's taught and encouraged. 
So when did you start? Now, you did you start in the world of real estate, investing in real estate while you were outside of Canada? Or were you back in Canada when you started getting into that world of a hard asset called real estate? You know, it started before I left. So I, I had rented with my roommate after graduating for uh, almost a year. And at the time in Calgary, there were a number of apartments conversions to condo. That was the the big fad. You, this old tired apartment building, you got to pick your new countertop, your your rug, your wall color, and away you go. And when I looked at it, I could buy this condo that was similar to what I was renting. And my roommate would pay me rent and my monthly payments would actually go down a tiny bit and I'd own something. So that kind of seemed to me like that was going to be a great deal. But I left the country within a year and a bit. Um, so my roommate found a new roommate and was able to continue that for a number of years. And finally, I hired a property manager. And and that went great, too. I didn't have to be there. I didn't have to do much. Uh, in the Cayman Islands, you're not as able to buy real estate. Part of it, because you're on a work permit, you don't know how long you're going to be able to stay. You always need about a five-year time horizon, I think, in order to recoup the selling costs and transaction costs for real estate. So it made more sense to buy additional real estate back in Canada, but it looked at the format was condo because I just wasn't there to oversee it. So a couple more condos while living overseas. And then I think there's two, two realms of real estate. One is emotional real estate, which is the house you buy for yourself. And I moved into that next phase where it was time to, to get a house. So so and then and so when you that was where you're coming back to Canada. Now you met somewhere in all this. You met your husband. Yes, yes. So actually, uh, I got married to my uh, longtime boyfriend right before moving to Cayman, and he actually was doing shift work in Russia as a chartered accountant, also. Mm. But on his months out, he could go anywhere. So. It worked great that I could choose to move where my career would lead me and he would just be able to come out from Russia for his months to wherever I went. So that's how we launched on this great adventure to the Cayman Islands, to which uh, we later had two wonderful children and continued to enjoy our time there. And then very tragically, he passed away mm. after we were there for 10 years. And that was a that was where the emotional real estate came in. I didn't want my landlord to be able to say, "Your family needs to move." And I was in the fortunate position that I was able to afford purchasing a house there, and that we could just hunker down as a family and keep everything else the same when we just had this very monumental shift. Uh, and I figured I'd probably need to move back to Canada for family support for the kids, uh, but just wasn't quite ready to do it yet and didn't quite know what that would look like and continued working because that was what I knew how to do and to keep things looking normal for a little while. And over that course of uh, a year and a bit, almost two years, uh, I was introduced to my wonderful husband now who had also uh, very sadly lost his wife and had two wonderful girls. And we just had this fabulous blended family come together that we are eternally grateful for. I 
there were points in my life where I didn't really think I was ever going to have kids and then surprised myself and had a couple of my own. And then another surprise, I have four, <laughs> which I certainly would have never seen coming, but it's fabulous. It, it just, I really, having only had two children in the family I grew up in, no experience of a big family. Big family is wonderful. There's really so many blessings in, in having more than two kids. But then we moved back to Canada. And interestingly, my husband was never intending to move back to Canada either. He'd lived away, gone to Japan for a decade. And sure enough, uh, the merits of the Canadian system won out. And we found ourselves back here with our with our Partridge family. And I needed something to do other than the very demanding hedge fund industry with so much travel. And I had kids going to the local elementary school, coming home for lunch. Real estate really ticked all the boxes for me to be able to set my own hours, decide what my workload would look like. Uh, apart from pipes breaking or uh, roofs coming in, you know, the, the rest of it I could schedule and make it work from home. And that's what we did. And that's when the big real estate investing took form. Now, did you, when you got into the world of real estate, did you stick pretty close to Alberta in terms of your portfolio or did you expand outside of that? Yeah, I actually kept real estate uh, in the Cayman Islands for well, probably a decade after leaving and, and initially started in Calgary. We took the condos that I'd had and renovated them and sold them. And in selling those, purchased houses. And my plan at the time was, I'm busy right now, but in five years' time, I've got these great uh, large lot older bungalows that you basically were purchasing for land value. And it came with a super solid 1960s race bungalow that you could rent out. So it would cover its costs in the meantime, but at some point it had knocked down potential and they would have two or three subdividable lots that could come out of it. This was my big plan. Did you go through with that plan? As always, plans really don't ever work out exactly as you think. <laughs> so they were fabulous to have. And uh, and I've enjoyed the time of the hands-on property management and, and tenant uh, responsibilities. But it takes a fair bit of time. And so I sort of hit a wall where I just didn't have any more time to give, but I, I wanted to expand the business. And had a pivotal moment where I got together with some like-minded real estate professionals and realized there's actually teams in other provinces that I could tap into that could help me find these properties, manage them for me, uh, great people that could help with renovations. And I just hadn't really taken that step of having it outside of control of my two hands. And as soon as I had that realization, I was able to grow it monumentally from where I'd started. So that led me to Ontario. That led me uh, outside Calgary to Edmonton, to Lethbridge. I was able to to expand to a variety of different cities that offered the possibilities without it having to be an additional immediate time burden to myself. Now, there's a whole bunch of directions I want to go with this, but I want to go back, you know, as somebody listening to this, you know, I think that you're kind of You've, you've lived kind of that dream of many where, oh, what would it be like to, you know, live in a tropical area where, or in a, you know, a tropical island, you know, and uh, work and vacation and lifestyle. 
So when you reflect on that time, it sounds like it was pretty cool. But if you're giving somebody some guidance in, you know, living in the Caymans or anywhere tropical for that matter, and I guess you can't compare, you know, Caymans to much because it's kind of a unique place, but what kind of guidance, what would you say that you learned in that process? Uh, I think what people don't realize until they do that is it's actually very easy to do. We think it's not going to be easy to do. We think it's these big changes are so monumental that it's just too much. And for some people, it's something they really don't want. There were, it was fairly quickly, um, some of our office mates would discover this just was not a fit. They they missed the antique furniture they had back home. They missed certain routines and they weren't happier where they originally started from. But for most people, when you push yourself to that moment where you're outside your comfort zone, you're going to have to make new friends, you don't know where things can be found, uh, you realize you can figure all this out and you just have to tap into resources and you learn a lot about yourself and the world when you put yourself in that moment of stress. Uh, and you don't stay in that stress moment for very long. You, you revisit it sometimes, but uh, generally the, the benefits outweigh the initial risks that you have to take to get there. So I would encourage anybody who has the, the moment and the, and the resources to create an opportunity for themselves and just go try anything in a different country, in a different city, uh, even if it makes you want to come back to the one you've come from, you come back that much wiser. Well, you know, what's interesting is that was now back then, was there an expat community that you had contact with or not really? Uh, you know, it was very interesting. There was um, a very English expat community when I first arrived, and it is a British dependent territory. Mm -hmm. But as I arrived, our hiring that year at Pricewaterhouse seemed to touch all corners of the globe. So we had we had Irish, South African, Scottish, English, Canadian. Doesn't work out for the Americans to go there, so there weren't very many of those. Uh, New Zealand, Australia, and it was just it was kind of a potpourri of people from all over the world, which again led to this wonderful experience of learning so much from people I would have never had contact with otherwise. So, you know, it's interesting that I think these days when we look at all the immigration coming into Canada and totally off topic, but kind of in line with, you know, you going to Caymans or anybody going anywhere. I've got some friends that have moved to China, for example, you know, and they live there for two, three years full on. And, you know, a couple of Canadians going and living in China and what that was like for them. And we've shared that experience, but it really gives me an appreciation when I hear stories about from you or from friends that have gone somewhere. Imagine immigrants coming into this country, you know, from faraway places, totally different climate, environment, and just how brave that is and how, you know, really, what does it take for immigrants to come move their families, sometimes separate their families. And, you know, the one of them live here for a few years before they bring their husband and their kids or wife and kids. It's like, it's so, it's, it really stretches my mind about what it takes to do that. I don't know that I could, by the way, I, I don't know that I could. And I think about, you know, in the case of what's happening in the world today, you've got Ukrainian refugees coming here and really how, powerful that is like what it takes 
for your AQ, your adversity quotient to do that. So I know it's a random comment, but it just made me think of that. No, it, it's so true. And and I had it the easiest path possible in that it was still an English speaking environment uh, and really not that different from where I had come from. Uh, when you look at the contrast of potentially moving somewhere like China or the Ukraine or South America, where things look so different than where you've come from and the language is so different, there'd be so many barriers. I, I had it very easy with no language barrier. And, and I'd love to think I might be brave enough to try it elsewhere. My original plan was to get to Luxembourg and put that school French to a test, but that would have been difficult. I don't, I would have never got the accent quite right. I would probably never been fully accepted. It would have been a lot of work. There was a time where I was literally going to be moving to Quebec city. This was mm, quite a few years ago, 20 years ago. And like, it was a done deal in it ultimately changed. But prior to that, I was having to be that adult being self-taught at the time in French. And I was like, I don't think I'll ever get this. You know, learning a new language as an adult is really hard work. <laughs> and probably, you know, like I, I just couldn't wrap my mind around it. And I'm still trying to, you know, think in English and speak in French and all the rest of it. And of course, I did learn a lot, but, you know, use it or lose it. And I've lost it. But anyways, it turns out I did move to Quebec City. I love Quebec City, by the way. Uh, found beautiful. And uh, anyway, so that's how that all unfolded. It didn't. You moved. You say you can't do it. You did it. Too. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about, you know, when you think about, you know, one of the questions that I like to engage in sometimes is, you know, you've done all this, you know, this many years later, you're here today, you're still young. And, you know, if you look and reflect, what is your, what would you say is your superpower, Colleen? Hmm. You know, I think the ability to look at what I think I want to move towards, I try not to use the word plan so much anymore, but what, what I think I'm working towards the goal that I would like to uh, progress towards and seeing what might need to be done to get there and looking for the tools to make that happen. I don't think I would say I have one specific attribute uh, that's that's a superpower, but I do think I, I'm ready to work hard. I research, uh, learn, keep my ears open, try to leverage what's around me and and work towards a goal. I think, I think those would be sort of the skill set that I think has served me really well over the years and that many different pivots that I've had over time. Yeah. It, and it's not a, a question intention, you know, intended to trip anybody up. It's a tough question, you know, and, and I've, I've been asked that question. I've done work around that and really recognizing our superpowers is really interesting. Easier for people outside of us to kind of point those out. Works really good in a group session with people, you know, but having said that, you know, if you could recognize your kryptonite. So I'll give you an example. One of my kryptonites is anything to do with accounting. And I'm not saying that it's so true. I, I, my eyes glaze over and my accountant who I've worked with many, many years knows that to speak to me, it's got to be point form. Don't wander around and speak with some intention and intensity. Otherwise he'll put me to sleep. I'm just not interested. And it, 
it really shuts me down. So it's funny, like, but that kind of minutia is, is an example of what my kryptonite is. If you want to shut me down, just get me into that kind of minutia. So that's just an example. Do you have an example of what might be your kryptonite that you just forget it? I'm not going to do it. You know, I think that ties so well in with if I could distill what I think a superpower might be, maybe positivity and perseverance. And for me, what sucks that out of every poor is when I'm surrounded with negativity, then you start to triggers an imposter syndrome. It makes you feel like this is a, an environment where you just can't do and others are picking holes at you. So maybe you aren't really what you thought you were. And um, there are there are environments that have that uh, energy to them that once I recognize it, I dismiss myself from it now. And I think I'm getting better at recognizing what those environments look like, but it's just, you, you can, I'm vulnerable to allowing myself to have the energy sucked out of me if I surround myself with the wrong people. And I, and I try to be quite careful about that now. That is, uh, man, that's so important. But, you know, it's interesting that when you consider, you know, where you built your career and built a lot of your learning was because you were actually in the environment. It's interesting that, you know, in, you know, with, within RAIN, within the community, you know, it's really about environment and like-minded individuals and, you know, putting yourself in a community of those kinds of conversations. Now, not everybody aligns and not everybody's at the same level, but just fundamentally uh, is to shine a light on the fact of how important environment is as well as community. And, you know, when you, when I think about how you shared your story about what was going on in the Caymans, that's what you had created is, you know, and whether you created it or not, I say you created it because it manifests only because you can step into it. And, you know, lots of people would have had the same opportunity and been intimidated by it and not gone in. They would have walked away from it. And so, you know, part of the superpower is being able to be willing to step into that environment, knowing that you're going to be challenged and seeing the opportunities that will exist in it. So I think that's very, very cool. And it is interesting, right, when you have a big heart and you want to support others and you do find yourself in environments and in situations which, yeah, you know, why did I do this? And then you have to back out of those kind of energy leaks that we create for ourselves, right? And, uh, but I think it's such an important message is that, you know, put yourself in the right environment and you have no choice but to up your game. It goes, it's like, you want to be a great golfer, go golf with three other people or two other people, whatever the circumstances that are way better than you. And you will, in fact, up your game. And that's just the nature of the environment and who you're surrounding yourself with. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You can't, uh, you can't emphasize that too much ever. And even whether it's skills or, or mentality. And I just think that being around other positive people, not that everyone has to be happy all the time, but you, you really, when you surround yourself with others that lift you up, um, then you, you really go places a lot faster than when you end up being in a group that, uh, that really doesn't support you in the, the direction that you want to go. Well, I think it's, yeah. And I think there's something that you just said there, which is, it's not always about being happy. You know, we, it, it you can be happy having a lot of challenges. It doesn't mean that you're unhappy. It's just, this is a phase that you go through with these challenges. And 
I think that some people are happy having those challenges, although it might not seem that way. You know, that's part of the growth. That's where the growth lives is in those challenges. And so, yeah, it's an interesting, but you said it, it's, you know, not only the skills, it's the mentality. And, you know, if you don't have the skills, then you better bring some mentality of openness and a willingness to, you know, up your game and to learn and to grow and to actually gain those skills that you might be missing. And that's a big part of it, you know, I, I believe anyway. So I, we got off on a little bit of a tangent, but I think it's just an important uh, insight to share. Well, and just the constant uh, growth and education, really, like I am my one of my favorite places is uh, the library or a bookstore. And, you know, my my weakness is just picking up every book that I want to read and I can't carry them all. <laughs> you know, there's so many, so many fabulous, interesting stories out there and and uh, modalities that you, you, I know nothing about and I want to learn more. I just think that having a, a hunger for for education and knowledge is uh, is something that helps spur you forward and helps you find new directions you didn't always know were there before too. Well, you said something that you know you're looking at hard copy books. Is 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 a hardcover, hard copy, or a you know tan you know that that book that you have in your hand is that uh, you know that tactile tactile feeling of a book in your hand is that still important to you? For me, I, I love Kindle because I can carry you know however many books I want. And it's just the weight of my, my iPad or my Kindle. So, but is it for you? Do you like folding corners and writing on books and how is it for you in your learning? Yeah, I'm tactile. I love carrying that book. If I go to the beach, I want a book in my hand. If I'm sitting at the couch, I want a book in my hand. Uh, a little bit better about you know, newspaper and magazines can all be online, but if I'm going to really indulge in something, then I think it takes more of my I'm connected to it if I'm physically holding it mm -hmm. reading the words like I don't want someone else to read it to me I can read faster than they can speak and they sound really funny if I put them on two times speed so I just I like I like having a physical book and reading it and I find uh there can be more than one book on the go right I've got a book that I it's an escape book you just enjoy reading somebody's fictional world uh when there's a knowledge book and there's, you know, I'll have a few on the go at any moment. And I, I just really like seeing them and holding them and reading them that way. Well, that's interesting. Some are like that. I, you know, you bring that there's a, and I don't know where we got it from, but there's a commitment that I've recently made and I don't know what was driving it. Somebody had said, take the time to read a book instead of reading. So instead of being quantity and, you know, how many books you particularly read, you know, really dig into a book, like digest it fully. So take a month to read a book. And it was interesting that I get into efficiencies. So again, I may have my iPad and a Kindle reader. And, and I like that because I can highlight and make notes and copy and paste thing. And that's kind of how my brain works. And yet I do listen to a lot of Audible, particularly because I love having books on the go. We live on five acres, so I'm always doing stuff outside. And even if it's me sitting on a riding mower and just, I always have to have something playing. It, I don't know if I, <laughs> that's a different conversation, but I always, but I don't, I, I realize I don't get as much out of an audible as I do out of my Kindle reader, for example. And I think the hardcover, you know, getting back to that book is an interesting 
I'm gonna have to try it again. <laughs> maybe, maybe I'll take it on. I haven't, it's been so long since I picked up a book. Well, it's so funny. I've got uh, a, a book club, which is a, a lovely group of people that uh, I would be probably one of three that actually still physically read a, a book. And most have it in their ears when they're dog walking or doing other things. And and it's a different perspective. I think there's a there's probably a, a place for both. But how nice that we all have the choice for what works best for us. <laughs> well, it's interesting what I've learned. And just because uh, the podcast that we, you know, this podcast I've been running for seven years, so I get lots of feedback and we literally have thousands of people that listen to it. But some of the feedback that I get, the realizations, I just had this conversation recently, as a matter of fact, at a live event I was at and somebody shared with me, that they listen to the podcast and there's been a number of guests over the years that they listen to it two, three, four times. And it's like, I'm listening to it and I go, I didn't hear that before. I didn't hear that before. And what I learned a long time ago was that when you're taking something audible and learning from it, and what happens is that you get caught in a moment in a thought. And the fundamentals, somebody says something and you capture that thought. And as you're digesting that thought, because you can only think of one thing at a time, only one, 20 seconds, two minutes, five minutes goes by that you literally heard nothing. You heard some maybe rumblings in the background, but you were absolutely retaining zero for five minutes, 10 minutes, whatever it was that you were stuck on that thought. The point is, the next time you listen to it, that 10 minutes shows up. And it's like, oh, I didn't hear this before. And it's an interesting realization when it comes to the auditory, whereas in a book, you can actually stop, digest that moment in time, make a note of it, highlight it, do whatever you do. So true. Or go back and immediately reread. Quite often, yeah, there's little sections you're like, I I didn't get all of that. I got to, you know, one more time, <laughs> especially if it's Greek mythology or something very complex, but yeah. And, and we'll, I got one comment to make, which is just a laugh at myself and, and then we can move on. But the realization that I have of reading and part of the problem I have of reading a book and, and my eyes are good. I've had them checked. I do wear glasses, but my eyes aren't that bad, but I do find that when I start reading, I want a nap. Within probably 15 minutes of reading, I want to close my eyes and have a nap. So I don't know, maybe that's just an old guy thing. I have no idea, but I do notice that. Probably because you're finally sitting down. You're not on that riding mower or doing all the work. <laughs> that could be it. Now, I want to go to, now, you, because I know this, you've shared this with me in the past, that your husband went on to open a restaurant in, in Calgary. And that was also yes. part of your life. And I know that he was very successful at it. Tell me a little bit about, you know, that and how the restaurant started and what was a little bit behind that. Was that strictly his dream? Was it a dream? Was it a, a couple's dream? How did that kind of manifest? He had two partners that uh, each had complementary skill sets and the three of them have been in business uh, for, for you know, two decades before they decided to, his partners were a little older than he was and uh, it was time for them to to close shop. So very luckily that happened prior to the pandemic because it was fine French cuisine that would not have traveled well in styrofoam containers with sauces sloshing as Skip the Dishes went to deliver it. So uh, uh, it was actually also a very nice pivot for him to be retired and home during that period because anyone who's not familiar with restaurant lifestyle it doesn't start at the crack of dawn, but once it gets going, you know, he would come home for a little split uh, in between the lunch shift and the dinner shift, and he'd have 
uh, part of after school with the kids. And dinner was at five, and at 5.30, he was back. And there till 11 or whenever the kitchen shut down. It's a pretty demanding lifestyle. And he, they made the conscious decision the restaurant would not be open on Sundays. So there'd be at least you know one day off a week. And quite often, it was only one day off. So very, very restrictive and demanding uh, lifestyle profession to be in, but uh, but also very rewarding. Met a number of fabulous people along the way, and it's surely his passion. And we've been lucky to have the benefit of fabulous food in our house, which uh, I'm very grateful for. The dream of his. Now that takes, you know, there's often conversations I have is, you know, how important is your significant other in supporting your success? Now you were, you've been very successful. Your husband was very successful, but as a couple, you know, taking on and living that lifestyle takes some effort. You know, it takes, you know, it doesn't happen by accident. And along the way, there's challenges and there's trials and tribulations and all the rest that goes with it. What do you think kept you both grounded as a couple? And it may be a tough question, Colleen. Like, I know these are kind of random questions, but I'm curious, you know, what does it take as a couple to do that kind of a lifestyle for children, blended family? If you reflect on it and think about it, is there guidance or is there something that you've come to realize over the years that we can do this because? It is interesting because we're two very different people. Uh, if you can imagine an accountant and a, and a creative, right? These are, these are two very different people, but with this similar value system. And I, I think the, the grounded values of uh, family first, positivity, creation, these were things that were fundamental to how we went toward every decision. Um, and really, as many parents do, it was about the kids. We had to, kids were first and businesses could come second, uh, demanding businesses on both fronts. Uh, not to say the, the kids didn't learn to paint fences and rip out carpet. <laughs> we did a lot of family activities around real estate. We we did a lot of family activities around the restaurant. We, our New Year's Eve was uh, was always on January 1st at the restaurant with all the party hats and noisemakers scattered on the ground and the dance floor hadn't been packed up yet by the, uh, the rental company. And we'd go, we'd cook dinner in the kitchen, we'd turn on the music, we'd dance. Yeah. We just are adaptable, I think, to finding the little nuggets of time and, and things that were most important to us while also being able to support fairly demanding businesses on, on both sides. And, and it's been interesting to see that shift into retirement now, because it's a whole nother phase of life for my husband to be retired and for me to still be working and what that looks like as a couple. What have you learned about yourself over the past three years in terms of COVID or what have you learned, uh, as a couple, is there been some kind of aha moments that you reflect on over the past three years, given what happened with the pandemic and you're going, this is interesting. Anything that shows up for you? Uh, you know, for us, we went through a few phases. Uh, initially, having lived in a hurricane zone of a Caribbean island, I, I have a certain mentality around preparing for disaster because this mm -hmm. did hit the island. And we, they, there's a there's kind of a checklist of what do I need, right? What what's going to happen? What do I need? And you don't always know exactly. Didn't know that much toilet paper would be required, but you definitely had an idea that 
you know, you want to have some cash on hand. You want to have food in case that goes wrong. You know, you want to be able to hunker down. Uh, and we started with that mentality of seeing this thing coming and thinking we needed to prepare for it one way. And then a bit of a shift where we realized it wasn't really going to be that kind of, of uh, an emergency. It really was something to do with what do we do with all this time? How do we turn this into something that's positive? And you know, we were sort of blessed with the timing of Bob's retirement and being home and kind of having a bit of a recapture of all our kids because they were high school and university age and they should have been elsewhere, but we had them kidnapped. <laughs> they got to stay with us. And we had just a fabulous time with our family at a stage I fully recognize should not have been one that they would spend that much time with us. And I don't know what their version of that experience would be, but Bob and I felt really blessed. <laughs> when you look at what you're going to do into the future, uh, Colleen, and you see the opportunity in real estate is the, you know, is what's your, I guess, what is your thought process around real estate these days in terms of what you're trying to do? Are you looking at it as a kind of a side hustle? Are you looking at it as continuing to grow now for the legacy of the kids? You know, where does, what is the space that real estate holds for you and Bob now and, or your family? I think it's sort of twofold. I think it will always continue to be a foundational uh, asset to our portfolio that I do see being something that can be passed on to the kids. They've been a part of an, a lot of it along the way. Um, they're very familiar and and several of the kids are quite interested in it. Uh, so I, I see that as an ongoing. Uh, it's also my, my youngest, who's 18 now, made the comment the other day of how school and formal education really has not taught her much. She's learned the majority of her valuable education has come from TikTok, which is a little scary, but uh, somewhat true. And it's interesting to me what is not being passed on to our kids. And I I think at a time when nobody had a lot of extra disposable income, you know, sort of our generation, our parents' generation, the thought of investing in real estate was superfluous to be taught because it really, if you could afford your own home, that was, that was what you were striving for. Um, but now financial education is so important and really not being it's glossed over at best. I find with the K to 12 education system that we have in Canada, there's a few little programs that pop into the school and teach them how to run a little company or, or a few things, but the basics of credit card debt, uh, how you would want to try to save over time, living within your means, none of this sort of uh, foundational financial knowledge is really being passed on to our kids. And it's a gap. I, I think that would be something I'd really enjoy being part of. I'd uh, joined a group quite early on in its existence here in Calgary. It's called the 51. And its name comes from the fact that women represent 51% of the population and yet much smaller percentage of venture capital dollars when it comes to funding startups. And kind of neat over the course of the past handful of years, that group has grown to 23,000 plus people 
it's not just Alberta based, although that's still where we all live. Um, they, they dollars that have gone to startups in so many industries, food and ag and tech. Uh, you know, we're looking now at 30% of venture capital dollars for tech startups uh, are going to female founded or female co-founded companies here in Alberta. And they, the national average is 13. So where we often see Ontario being the center of Canada, if you want to, if you want to have venture capital dollars into your, your tech startup as a woman, this is the place to be. And I think from our oil and gas history, we've always been quite entrepreneurial in this province, but it's kind of neat to see that with the lens of Canada and it, the numbers get even worse if you go south to the U.S., it, there's kind of a lot of interesting change coming here. And the more that we can push down that learning to the younger generations, the more that they'll be ready to take on the next challenges of industries that they'll be part of haven't even been invented yet. <laughs> Well, isn't that the truth? I love that, by the way. I think that sounds amazing and uh, look forward to hearing more about that. When you look back or you consider where your kids are today, you know, have you been pretty intentional about that financial education component of it? Have you found that they're open to it, Colleen? Oh, yes. Yeah. And whether they, uh, each each child's so different and sure. everyone had their, their natural abilities. Um, but we had a program at the house where everybody had a little notebook and they got $5 allowance every week and they put it one week in the spend, next in the save and the next in the donate column. And they had to add up all those old numbers and if they wanted to buy something, it, they had to track that. And, and it's interesting for some, the hardest part was parting with money and donating it. But if they would donate it, we would match it. So the money they would donate at any point in time was doubled and they could see their impact doubled, which encouraged some of the reticent ones to part with some dollars. You know, some had no problem spending, uh, some had no problem saving and needed to learn to spend and know what things cost. And so as much as I'm an accountant by training and I thought I knew what that exercise was going to look like, uh, it was very interesting to see it through and see what different lessons were taught to each one along the way. Uh, and everybody learned something. It was very valuable. Good for you, because, uh, of course, what we've learned and what I've learned, you know, from guests along the way is that, you know, parents just don't spend enough time with their kids teaching them about money. And sadly, the reality of it is, is that many couples don't really have great conversations between them, let alone, you know, with their children. And, you know, money is often or can often be a, an emotionally charged conversation if you've got a couple and, you know, depending on what their background was being raised as a child. You know, I didn't have big extensive conversations with, you know, let's say my parents, although my dad was pretty great. Like he, he would take some time and explain a couple of things with me. And, you know, it's interesting what sticks. And I just always remember I would, ah, gosh, I was young. I'm probably 14 years old. And it was just a, a conversation in passing. I think I asked him some question and it sparked a comment from him, which was, you know, something along the lines of whatever you do, make sure that you manage your credit and don't take credit on and manage your credit rating and make sure it always stays really strong. Now, 
I didn't take a lot of advice from my dad. I was kind of not on that same page often with my father. But for some reason, that particular message stuck. And boy, did it ever serve me. So it's interesting where we get the lessons from and uh, from our parents along the way. So I don't know where I go with that comment, but understanding that it could be so much more intentional. So true. And it's things that we don't, we don't talk about money and we're taught that it's impolite to ask, right? Which there's probably some merit in that. We don't have to talk only about money, but it would be good if we had healthy conversations around money, around uh, death or even, right? These are things we don't really have any comfort in discussing. And so when they happen, we have no framework from which to approach I think it's it's really important that we try and have these conversations with our kids, with our our parents, with our spouses, and and hopefully that sets the platform for people to be able to have the conversations a little more freely. Because you're right, those are those are some of the sticky points that often often break things down. I want to pick up too. It's interesting when you talk about you know credit card debt. This is one. It's just I, it's so wrong. Yeah. <laughs> it's just, Maybe there's a plan and you can use that as financing. Well, this, this is really not a good idea most of the time. There'd be other ways to do it. Other things that we are, are not taught or that we're taught differently. You know, as a Canadian, you just got to pay down your house, right? Put everything into paying down your house, which was sort of the mentality that I had with mortgages until you get with like-minded investors and get involved in real estate from a business perspective. And it, it's not a good idea to pay down your mortgage. There's better uses of your capital generally. You, you want to have the ability to leverage yourself. In fact, that's the superpower of real estate, right? Is being able to leapfrog from one to the next with, with judicious use of, of debt. So kind of interesting when you have little aha moments over time where some of these Canadianisms, the fundamental financial foundational teachings need a little tweaking along the way in order to get you to the next level. It is so true. So, uh, you know, it is it is very true. And they're emotionally charged because money, and you mentioned even having conversations about death. I mean, these are emotionally charged conversations that very few would be equipped to have. And, and so you got to be you have to be prepared to stumble through it. You have to be prepared to live in and sit in the discomfort of it and the awkward moments where you don't know where to go with a conversation or what to do. But those are actually, that's actually what pays off. You know, those, those that discomfort of going through it and fumbling your way through it and figuring it out. And if you can get guidance, great. But ultimately, I think, you know, when it comes to families and having these conversations, there's huge payoff in it at the end of the day if you're willing to go through the kind of discomfort and the emotional side of things as you go. So true. Absolutely. So Colleen, I want to say thank you for your time. And as we wind down, I've got what I would refer to as some rapid fire questions that are, uh, that are often not that rapid. And uh, <laughs> but we'll have the, there's no there's no time limit on any of them, by the way. Some of them are pretty, pretty straightforward. But I, you know, I start off really light. You know, is it uh, are you Apple or Android? Oh, Apple. Oh, Apple. Of course. Apple, 100 <laughs> percent. Bring it on. The next bring, one. <laughs> bring it on. That was easy. So, so I need Apple to walk me through how to do everything. And I love it. Do you have a top book that you've either had the most impact that's had the most impact on you or one that you kind of want it that you gift or share a lot? There's one that came across um, 
well, a couple actually in the last couple of years. And um, one's called Homes. And it's the story of an Iraqi family that moved to Syria uh, right before the Civil War and eventually found themselves uh, immigrating to Canada. Fairly short. It's actually written by one of the eight children, uh, along with the help of his teacher when he was in elementary school in Edmonton. And I, I did not know that there was that close to home a Canadian connection when I saw the book. And it's a fascinating read and one that I have passed on to initially all my kids and then friends just for some perspective on uh, you know this global world that we can imagine having some of these challenges in our lives. And yet we're coming across a lot of people in our country that have had these challenges. And I think it's just sort of eye-opening to, it's just a peek inside the box of what other people may have been dealing with in life and perhaps reframes for ourselves some of the, the gratitude we should have for the lives that we've been able to lead and where we might be able to help others along the way. Yeah, that goes back to what I said earlier about immigrants coming into this country. Some of the stories are just would blow our minds. It is really remarkable. It's so brave. Well, and even more than that, the perspective to understand like one of his greatest challenges when they got to Edmonton was they were placed in a house where there was basically a bedroom for every kid, because that's what we think should happen as Canadians. And they found it traumatizing. They were used to sleeping together. They lost this connection. They'd eat dinner and then go to their rooms, which is kind of what lots of people do in North America, but it wasn't consistent with their value system and was, in addition to the winter and the new language, it was just too much of a disconnect. And you think, wow, you know, other people from other places have different frameworks and you can't always impose our own thought process, I'm sure. The humanitarian group was doing the best they could by giving them such a big home, but it wasn't really a favor in the end. That's so interesting. Um, and you had another book? Yeah, it's actually the uh, uh, Melinda French Gates book, The Moment of Lift, um, which right, is just about when you empower women and not as a feminist perspective, you know, rah, rah, just from a grassroots, you know, educational perspective and worldwide. You know, if you really want systemic change within communities, you have to engage all parties, which includes women in a big way. And we traditionally have done it mostly on, on men as the decision makers, how to households, and, and her perspective on how a lot of the philanthropic work that she does has been targeted to reaching that other 51% of the population. And the moment that lifts all of us up when we do that it was was quite empowering. And when I read that, I've passed that on to quite a few people as well. That's awesome. And do you have a favorite song or a favorite band, a go-to? Oh, I love so much music. Mm. Uh, one, you know, Billy Joel, all-time favorites from elementary school to today, still one of the best. But I, I really enjoy a lot of uh, a lot of music from around the globe. We have a number of Latino bands, I follow Mexican, Brazilian, just sometimes there's whatever mood you're in, it's nice to match the music to the mood. Awesome. How about a favorite movie? Planes, Trains, Automobiles. <laughs> <laughs> that would be the all-time classic. And then uh, most recently, the uh, there's there's two that tap into my other passion and love, which is uh, 
gardening and and soil health as much as that doesn't sound very exciting but uh there's a movie called the biggest little farm which is just fabulous it follows the story of converting a dead uh, apricot orchard in california to a, a thriving small farm love love loved it can make even the crustiest person cry with beautiful animals beautiful people and then also kiss the ground i really liked uh woody harrelson lent his narration to documentary kiss the ground and i loved it so much and brought it to my community garden group and we showed it our movie night and i wasn't really sure if everyone was gonna love it but uh it's just a, a really thought-provoking climate change, soil health, being better citizens of the world movie that encapsulates all those values uh, would be another I'd highly recommend. Wow, that's interesting. Uh, we now have, it's funny you bring up gardening. We just had our gardening meeting last night. We have eight raised beds, four by eights, and then we have friends and we have our chosen family that we hang out a lot with uh, out here. And we did our whole uh, plan for our gardening this year. And what are we, you know, what are we going to, you know, what do we want that we're going to put in our meal on a regular basis and harvest? And then what are we going to harvest for the fall? And what are we going to, you know, perhaps put on the shelf? And so it was a whole, whole meeting around how we're going to plan our gardening that we've been learning a lot over the past few years about you know that soil health and 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 the good news is is we've got a couple of really kind of savvy farmer gardeners in our in our midst that are uh, sharing their insights along uh along the way so it's been very very fun but it's funny you bring it up we literally had that meeting last night <laughs> so it's good in garden geek too that <laughs> <laughs> we're turning into garden geeks and i'm gonna get you know I'm, I'm doing chickens this year we're gonna have all sorts of fun so anyways oh <laughs> God, i we had to bring back the mystery gardens everybody just needs to grow two rows of carrots or whatever they need and we so, change the world that's right change the world <laughs> it was interesting is that i don't know what country it was and so i'm really talking out of school but it was they gosh, I don't remember where it was. Anyways, they offered the whole city, I think, or whatever area, five free chickens. Ooh. And half of the, about 50% took the chickens, 40% took the chickens. And they reduced infill or, no, not infill, but uh, waste, if you will, uh, mm. by 100,000 tons. Oh, wow. It was wow. it was remarkable because, of course, it wasn't going into the garbage can or or even to the whatever eco center they may have. Anyways, I'm a little vague on the details because I don't remember them at the moment. But anyways, it was I thought that was kind of cool just because that's what chickens do. They'll eat anything. They're like almost like goats. A couple of small tweaks. And it seems to me we can uh, we can solve a lot of problems. Change the world <laughs> for sure. <clears throat> now, along the way, uh when you kind of reflect on life and even reflect on where things are today, what are you grateful for? Oh, you know, I'm absolutely grateful for my, my family and the many blessings I've, I've had over the years. Uh, that, that's fundamental. That makes every day uh, what, I, what I dream of and opportunity. And I, I have always recognized that and more so with every year that I have been other places and been around other people that I've been blessed to start my life uh, from a position of favor, really. I, I've, I've had opportunity and blessings that I fully recognize 
have not been there for everyone. And I'm not saying I started off wealthy, but I started off with the ability to have education. Um, I've come to learn it's quite a blessing to be female as well, which uh, once you, you learn to work with the assets you have, I'm just absolutely blessed. And so I'm, I'm very grateful. And I try to be practice gratitude on that every day. That's beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. Well, I am always grateful for my guests and the opportunity to get them know better, to get to know them better and to have them join uh, the show and share their insights with the audience. And uh, like you, I am very, very blessed and grateful to uh, have amazing family and wife and chosen family and all the things that are in my life these days. And so, Colleen, thanks for joining me on The Everyday Millionaire today. My pleasure, Patrick. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening. If you found value in the podcast, please take the time to rate and review and share with others. Share with your friends. As it is my goal to always improve and to provide the highest value for you, the listener, if you have any comments, suggestions, or questions you'd like answered, please email me at ceo at raincanada.com. That's ceo at reincanada.com. I look forward to hearing from you. And until next time, Patrick out.